Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, August 31st, and I'm the host of this episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Asit Sharma, as we talk some retail earning news. Hey, Asit, thanks for joining. Emily, thanks for having me. I must say this morning, I am in, am in a sporting mood. <laughs> it's, it's a good pun for what we're going to talk about. And for listeners who listen to both Industry Focus as well as one of our other podcasts, Motley Fool Money, it may be, at least for our first story here, a little bit repetitive. That's because I covered this story on Motley Fool Money last week and was reminded that I probably owed our Industry Focus audience an apology on this business, which I I roasted, I guess, uh, last year. Around this time last year, I did pull Dick's Sporting Goods across the coals. And I'll tell you one thing, if 2021 has taught me something, it's taught me how to be very humble because Dick's has performed extremely well this year. Emily, number one, I think you're humble to begin with. Um, number two, I think you're quite a leader because as I remember it, I was with you on that uh, podcast, and I joined in the roasting. So you know, I guess it would be easy for me to fly under the radar here and and ask how oh, you've been influence. so. How could have you you've been so harsh on Dick Sporting Goods? But I think I was joining you a bit in that. So maybe we both have a little soul searching Mia culpa, culpa to do. But good results can change a narrative, right? It, it, it can. I'm not sure it has. Maybe my my skepticism has continued. But to at least mention the earnings before we get on to what it means for Dick's. This past quarter was really impressive. Sales grew over twenty. Uh, this time last year, sales were up 21% year over year. And what was a pretty excellent year for Dix when you think about the demand for things like outdoor equipment, camping gear, all of those benefits that came into 2020 for Dix, they've done 20% sales growth on top of that. And same store sales growth of nearly 20%, again, on top of that 21% last year. So they've continued a lot of their momentum from 2020 into 2021. They even issued a special dividend of over $5 per share, um, significantly higher than their historic annual dividend. So for people who own this company, who are income investors, I'm sure they were very pleased to see that come out. But virtually across the board, all the metrics for Dix looked great in this most recent quarter, and the stock price is certainly showing that. Yeah, Emily, uh, in-store sales up 40% year over year, and that's on top of 36% growth versus 2019. So great growth, even if COVID ha- hadn't happened. That's one way you could interpret those results. Um, they did, as projected, have a decline in e-commerce sales, a 28% decline. That was still up 110% versus 2019. They also raised their full-year guidance for the second time this year. Now, with with all this that we see, why why were we so harsh on Dick Sporting Goods last time around? Why did, did you call them out? I did pull out my old notes. Of course, I keep all that the records from our podcast in the past, and I I appreciate my the enthusiasm with which I wrote about dicks and our previous outlines and podcasts past. But it seems to boil down to I, a, a general belief 
that Dix wasn't performing well because of any actions on the part of management or their own strategy, but rather because of this tailwind that was happening to the entire industry. And that the moment that tailwind stopped, Dix wouldn't be in a better position to to perform well in comparison to any other business in the market today. And that was, to be frank, I think wrong. I think Dix had actually made some strategic changes that went straight over my head. Um, for instance, I was nervous about the overinvestment into team sports inventory. This time last year, management was very convinced that you know, COVID cases were declining, headed into the fall, people were going to go back to school, more team sports were going to come back. I thought to myself, well, there's no way this pandemic is over. So there's no way they're getting all of this, this sports demand back. They're probably going to have to pull back the guidance that they had raised for that year. And what I didn't appreciate was not only the opportunities that would still happen even in a world where COVID cases are still accelerating, right? Team sports were one of the things that did come back. So management was right. But also just how many of those members they acquired in 2020, they managed to retain into 2021. So they had very strong retention of the nearly 8.5 million customers that they acquired last year. They acquired 2 million new customers this most recent quarter. So keeping those customers engaged beyond just the hiking and camping equipment was also something that I think I overlooked. It's it's funny that you should bring up the retention because that was something that I also thought would not be a factor. I felt that Dix would have some sort of fall off from the great customer influx that they had during the height of the pandemic. But if you look around, the, the world is still in this middle state between total reopen and shutdown. It's a very tentative reopen around the world because of the Delta variant. So maybe there's still some vulnerability in that retention uh, of this core cohort they gained going forward. I don't know. This is interesting about going back to school as well, because that essentially was a bet that management placed. It, they could have been wrong on that. I have trouble with retail environments in understanding, especially fashion, how a management team can consistently make the right bets how you rotate into what is going to be in a demand state, let's say two quarters from today or, or two years from today, the types of innovation that they've invested in, uh, you mentioned uh, sort of back to school, the, the team sports, as well as footwear, which is increasingly a space that Dix is playing in, shops within stores, such as their soccer stops, shops, and forays into golfing along with the, the team sports, which is actually a really persuasive volume driver for them. I get nervous around these. I feel that it says one thing about the management team that they have this very acute way of predicting what future demand will be. But it always reminds me with the retail business, you never know. You could be totally wrong in one year and that could hit your revenue and profits. I, I will say the stock is up over 150% over the past year. And by no means should investors kind of anchor to that price and think to themselves, well, that means the business is overvalued because whether or not a business is overvalued or a good buy depends uh, entirely on what we expect for the future, not what has happened in the past. But I say that just to show that the stock has appreciated, I think, the unique aspects of Dix that were maybe underappreciated, at least that I underappreciated last year. It begs the question of how much of this is repeatable. Um, I think I have some thoughts here about 
the type of investor this business might be good for. But when you look at Dix as it exists today, ignoring how wrong I've been over the past year, do you think that this is a business that is is worth analyzing more? Probably. In the consumer goods industry, you're set with a universe of companies that are only going to beat the rate of inflation by so much. That's the nature of the beast in consumer goods unless you have another component with which you can juice your revenue. For example, the tried and true example, Amazon.com, which has its whole software cloud business to support its retail sales, which are primarily e-commerce, also in grocery. So you have to look at what is repeatable and also sustainable. I think they've built a base for decent sustained performance. But you know, you, you were talking about stock price, Emily, and I was fixated on stock price, which is rare for me when we were researching this episode. So let's talk about it for just a, a bit. You bring up such an interesting point, this mammoth appreciation over the last year. But over the past five and 10 years, Dick Sporting Goods has actually underperformed the market until very recently. And in, by very recently, I mean the last three trading sessions. I didn't look this morning, but go back to the the earnings report, which we've been talking about. The shares as of yesterday were up about 28%. And that's because investors got hit with this one, two, three, four punch. So, you had the strong quarter, the raised guidance we talked about, the special dividend you mentioned, um, also a 21% raise in the quarterly dividend. I think I'm up to five. And the announcement, so maybe five punches here, the announcement of a $400 million minimum share buyback target for this year. They have an, uh, an authorization out that's a little bit less than $900 million. So, with all these factors, investors really took their skepticism off the table. Um, but, you know, management has been telling us since last year that they were going to base their guidance for this year off of 2019. In other words, they were going to assume that the effects of COVID wouldn't be as sticky as some of their peers are assuming they will be. We know they're going to lose some customers uh, as things get back to normal. So, hence, they've had to revise their earnings twice because of this conservatism. This plays into what they have been able to do with all the cash on the balance sheet that's excited shareholders. This 20% share price gain over the last few sessions it's, is what pushes Dix up to a profitable investment versus the S&P 500 for both the five and 10-year periods. So, the longer-term story here, I think, still is one of skepticism about this big-box retail model, although they've got some convincing similarities with Target, which has been very successful over the past couple of years, and another company, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. I, I won't give away which company this is. So, to me, this becomes more of a cash flow story. You're looking at a mature big box retailer that's really good with e-commerce, understands trends. They are trading at a price to free cash flow multiple of about 10 times. Now, that's less than half of what Target, which trades at 23 and a half times free cash flow. And this next company that we're going to talk about, uh, sorry, the next company we're going to talk about trades around 23 and a half times free cash flow, and Target trades at around 20 times free cash flow. Dix is going to have to earn multiple expansion, in my opinion, for this stock to pull off sustained performance over the next five or 10 year period. And this is where I begin to question well, where does that come from? So now I'll be quiet <laughs> um, and hear your thoughts on uh, 
how and, and why they might have a repeatable performance that shareholders are very happy with over this like past one to two year period. I still think that the idea of repeatable performance is going to be challenging for Dix because 2020 and 2021, I mean, these have been uh, the definition of non-repeatable years. I, I hope, good Lord, I hope it's not a repeatable year. But the idea is that Dix has been benefited, right, by aspects that are outside of its control. So um, do I think it's going to have another year where it accelerates 150% in terms of share price performance? No, but I do think that if I was an income investor, I would feel somewhat comfortable holding these shares in a way that I didn't appreciate in the years past. I didn't appreciate the improvements that management had made to their merchandising strategy, what they do to engage their customers and their loyalty programs, um, and also just the demand for the underlying product. I think uh, changing economic times, which includes the shift to retail, has put a lot of dicks um, in store competitors out of business. And management still does see the value in having some retail footprints. And uh, now we're seeing e commerce businesses like Amazon come around to the idea of having a retail footprint. So for those reasons, I, I'm, I'm less. Uh, bearish, I'll say, on dicks than I have been in the past. Although, admittedly, I do find that share price a hard pill to swallow today, which is why, unless I was buying it for the the total return here, just looking at the potential for capital gains, maybe I'm a bit more skeptical. I think uh, that skepticism is warranted. I have a last thought here. If you are an income investor, this company might make sense for you as in terms of the dividends, which Emily mentioned, but also the fact that if they can't find that multiple expansion, in other words, if they can't convince investors that there's a persuasive reason to push the share price higher, that there is some great revenue growth that is non-dependent on unusual events around the corner, you do have a company which has a really solid balance sheet, is generating cash flow that they're trying to figure out what to do with it. Their store opening cadence has slowed over the past several years. It, you know, it does have a big footprint for each store. So management is basically signaling to the market that we're going to start giving this cash back to shareholders. So from that perspective, I think it becomes a little more attractive. Um, lastly, on this one, if I were a shareholder, I'd be looking at that footwear business. I think that's got some nice potential I know before the pandemic, Dix was really exploring introducing more private label brands that they would own into the footwear areas in their stores. So this would be something to watch because footwear can drive uh, retail acceleration in this sort of big box concept. Definitely. And when we talk about this next business, I think it's a nice segue because in my personal investing history, the next business we're going to talk about is one that I, I've also made maybe some mistakes with. It was actually the last business that I sold in my portfolio. Um, so one of the few sales I've ever made, I made of this business back in 2018. So yes, I haven't sold a stock in I believe over three years now. And the reason why was because when I bought the business, I was a fairly new investor. Not that I'm still not learning, but I was very early on in my my investing journey. I bought the business. Um, I held it for a number of, I believe, two or so years. And I had seen that recently the stock price had appreciated greatly, gone up something like 100, 150% and just a matter of a year, a year and a half. And that made me nervous. And I was convinced by another analyst that, oh yeah, this business, it's at its peak. You should sell it. So I did sell it. And in the subsequent months, I believe it dropped by 30 or 40% on a bad earnings report. I felt 
very, very validated. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm learning, right? This is this is what investing's like. Since that point, this stock has gone on to more than double. Uh, and it is, uh, in case you haven't figured it out yet, in case you haven't heard me tell this story before, Best Buy. Uh, yep. Yeah, so Best Buy, amazing performing company since the pandemic has obviously performed extremely well as well. And they also had a strong earnings report over the last couple of weeks. Emily, I have a question before you jump into a quick recap, and then we can discuss this bigger picture. Do you ever get back to that analyst and remind them uh, what they said and, and demonstrate that, wow, you know, Best Buy wasn't anywhere near its peak? I'm just curious. You don't have to name the analyst. <laughs> I, I would like to think that this person, who does not work at The Fool, by the way, um, I would like to think that this person remembers our conversation and occasionally thinks to himself, uh, <laughs> maybe that was a bad call. But to be clear, I take full responsibility for that because as a new investor, I didn't have some of the critical things that I would need before buying a stock. One of those was a very clear thesis, right? I, I bought Best Buy without really understanding why I was buying the business that I was, what I was looking for in terms of performance. So when I saw the short-term performance, you know, very much subjecting myself to those behavioral biases that so many investors can have, I, I thought to myself, well, surely this isn't warranted, right? I didn't have a thesis, I saw big appreciation, and I sold. Um, but more importantly, I then went to confirm that bias when I saw that for, for little reason, it had dropped significantly afterwards. Those are the things that make investors underperform the market. Those are the things that make individual investors um, feel really good and then have performance that ends up being really bad. And I'm fortunate that obviously I was young at the time, this decision did not bankrupt me by any means, but it was a great learning experience. It's part of the reason why I have not sold an investment since I sold Best Buy. But I did. I, I missed that underlying thesis, which was critical and, and my responsibility as an investor. Those are the best types of scenarios that can happen to an investor when that investor is at the beginning of their learning curve. <laughs> woe, woe unto to him or her who experiences these lessons after many, many years. So, good on you. Well, um, so earnings, uh, Emily, revenue up 20% year over year to $11.9 bucks. Um, that was higher than analysts expected on a consensus basis of $11.5 billion. The earnings were also up very strongly, 75% year over year, $2.98 per share versus a buck 85 that was expected by uh, analysts and same source same store sales up 20% year over year uh, versus just 6% in 2020 i would have thought this would be sort of a hard comparison i was a little surprised by that number I am shocked as well, in part because I think I had some concerns regarding the chip shortages and how this may impact the demand and ability for Best Buy to meet its supplies. And uh, I think the demand for these equipment, right, still there, Best Buy still performing well, but I was surprised to see that there was very little impact on um, their actual store distribution and fulfillment of these underlying items. It hasn't happened yet. Their supply chain has not been impacted by the ship, the chip shortage. I wonder how long this chip shortage has to go on before it starts to show up in Best Buy's performance. But for the time being, Best Buy is doing well, in part because they're selling more things like appliances, phones, home theaters, all the things that I think people maybe thought we stocked up on in 2020. Apparently, we didn't. <laughs> And maybe we are stocking up on those even past the peak of COVID because we're hearing about this chip shortage. So we want to go out and, and buy those phones that we've been looking at before we find that they're out of our reach. 
Um, another thing that you pointed out in our notes when we were researching this episode is their store-based fulfillment model. That helps keep costs low. You noted to me that 60% of their online revenue was fulfilled by stores with things like in-store or curbside pickup. And that seemed very Target-like to me. Target's done a wonderful job of fulfilling e-commerce sales out of their stores. So you have an instance of another company that was working on this model before COVID, obviously, and it's just kept capitalizing on that. I like the change in consumer behavior that's persisting into 2021. I think we expected some level of things like in-store pickup or curbside pickup to continue even if the pandemic was flipped like a switch off. I don't think I expected it to continue at the same rate that it has been. I will be interested if this ticks down over time, but for the time being, actually having a physical store seems to be an advantage even as we all get back to work and spread out. Uh, People seem more willing as, as opposed to ordering something online to order it to a store, drive by, pick it up, maybe on their way to work, on their way home from getting food, whatever it may be. And I I do like it. It keeps costs much lower for the businesses themselves and lets them compete more readily with the natural e-commerce players. It almost gives them an advantage over natural e-commerce players by having your retail footprint, which I think if I had said that five years ago, people would have rolled their eyes. But I think we're seeing the reality of it today we're starting to understand why that footprint can be important. Emily, I had a parallel experience to you last week. I was on Market Foolery and I was talking about Best Buy and lamenting that I had ignored this stock for a long time. One of the things I point on that pointed out on that episode was management's innovative muscle. And you note that Best Buy has been testing their sort of geek squad package into something now which is going to be subscription based called Total Tech. This is a 199 buck a year subscription service. You get unlimited tech support, uh, premium service, product protection, free deliver- delivery, all kinds of things. This to me proves out something that I was skeptical about and just missed from several years ago. Why would people pay other people to come to your house and fix things that you could mostly fix on your own? Um, and And this is mostly software related assistance that you might need with your computer. But it turns out there's a huge market for people who still aren't comfortable with basic hardware software issues. And of course, you do have issues where your computer does break down. Um, The Geek Squad is there, but they're really ramping up that offering into something that is going to be even higher margin for the company. Interesting that um, the CEO, Corey Suberry, mentioned in their earnings call that with this ramp up into a more comprehensive offering on this side. It's not going to help out margins in the near term. They're making an investment, but I see this over time as improving long-term customer value, um, driving more of the CE, consumer electronics spend, uh, which means that they will push people back into stores because they're so loyal and they love the subscription. They'll end up buying more consumer electronics. It's a big focus area for management. So um, this, with some store testing, seems to me uh, a sign that I missed that the company is pretty innovative because it's stuck with this also sort of big box format. One of the things that I loved most about this offering was just how they're thinking about making people comfortable 
with tech support. It's been this area that I think invest, not investors, consumers uh, have just felt like they've been on their own. You have an issue, you have to figure it out on your own. You have to Google it, you have to trial things. And they're trying to say like, hey, no, you know, we've been ignoring this aspect of, of annoyance, I guess, in consumers' lives. Let's actually have an offering that can fix these problems. And that includes things like getting on your phone and talking to a tech support agent right there. If you're looking to make a purchase, right, going to your kitchen, maybe you're getting an appliance, you know, share your screens, right? You know, show them your kitchen, get advice about the size of TV or the equipment that you would maybe best use. And I, I like that aspect because it feels very forward looking. But you know, to your point, Best Buy has just been a machine. And while uh, it generates a ton of cash, I'm, I'm not sure that all of these initiatives will work, but I think ones that will, will probably end up sustaining growth for this business in a way that is underappreciated in the market right now. I also saw that they're moving into potentially new categories, things like outdoor living. So they're trying to meet the market where the market is. Yeah, you have to experiment, that's for sure. I guess last quick points before we wrap up here. I did some soul searching since my Market Fuller appearance last week. And here's what I think I missed some other aspects of this story. Sales efficiency is really high. In fiscal 2016, Best Buy had $836 of revenue per square foot. Fast forward to today, it's about $1,122 of revenue per square foot. So they're really efficient in lowering that store footprint and selling more per square foot. I didn't see how much they would end up selling in their computing and mobile phone segment. That's 46% of their revenue in fiscal 2021. And that obviously has this experiential element. You want to go into a store, check out the phones before you buy, and same with laptop computers and tablets. I totally missed that. I missed this very target-like build-out of the e-commerce fulfillment capabilities from in-store. And I missed that the the company is really savvy with its labor. They tend to cross-train employees quite a bit. Um, and they want to even have in the future what they call virtual stores, which are actually real stores that you can't walk into, but they're staffed with people who you can communicate with via video. <laughs> so you're, you're shopping on the site or you're in a real Best Buy store. You can dial into a real person who's in a mock store who will walk around and demonstrate the product. A lot of innovation and focus on lowering labor costs as well. So there is a lot here to this story that I missed, but thankfully I don't have the pain of having bought and sold out early. <laughs> <laughs> to, to maybe ask you an impossible question here, if you had to buy one of these businesses between Dick's and Best Buy, which one stands out to you? I, I think for me, it's, it's Best Buy, right? I've done this business wrong in the past, so I think that's where my vote goes. What about yourself? Yeah, I think Best Buy as well, because they're focusing on so many things which can just make them a little bit more stable than Dix is. Uh, they've done so much heavy lifting in the past few years. I think they're ahead of where Dix is. So, very much for me, it would be Best Buy. That is an impossible question, but on the spot, yeah, let's and, both go and, with that one first. And inevitably, uh, next quarter, Dix is going to be up another you know, 30 40% just because of what we said here. We will punish ourselves by revisiting <laughs> it right here. <laughs> Well, Asit, as always, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Emily. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. 
Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asa Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and full on. Thank you.